This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, broadcasting from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. If you are joining us on YouTube and wish to listen to this program as a podcast, you may click the link below to your favorite podcast platform. This talk is with Jane Huang Degenhardt, Professor of English, University of Massachusetts, Amherst. We will begin by taking a look at her recent book, Globalizing Fortune on the Early Modern Stage, and also explore key themes in her past and forthcoming publications. This series is funded with support from the Aoyama Gakuin University Institute of the Humanities, and also with a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Hello, Jane, thank you for coming on our program and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, your book, we're going to get straight to your book, and this is Globalizing Fortune on the Early Modern Stage out of the Oxford University Press. And there's a lot of early modern drama here. There's Shakespeare. There's a lot of history. But we're dealing with some forms that are very profound uh, that range from the classical philosopher Boethius and his reception in the Middle Ages. Uh, and you take us straight into the 16th century and uh, with the idea of fortune or the goddess Fortuna and images of that goddess. Uh, and I'll let you explain uh, more and more detail about the transformation you've identified. Uh, the feminization, because not always was fortune uh, a woman. And this is the kind of thing that goes straight into our time. The people who are they're religious among us, the many who are, um, push back on fortune because God's will is God's will in several global religions. And uh, fortune's sinful and all of that stuff. We'll talk about that. But may I ask you to begin by uh, kind of like in the introductory chapter of your book, you explain that you, out, you outline where you're going and explain that to us. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, in the broadest terms, the book is interested in sketching a kind of cultural history of fortune, um, sort of based around, centered around the year 1600. And it's looking at what happens to this idea of fortune, which has a long history that precedes it. Um, when, in short, um, England starts to enter the world stage um, and get involved in global commerce and get involved in colonial exploration and um, adopt new kinds of economic practices that are associated with early capitalism. And um, as a result of that, fortune really changes pretty radically in its meaning from, as you referenced you know, earlier, for example, uh, the Boethian tradition and the Middle Ages, where fortune is associated with the wheel of fortune. Uh, it's depicted through that iconographical tradition. Um, fortune, Fortuna is a, a goddess. She's blindfolded. She's uh, typically ensnaring and seductive and dangerous. Um, one of the things that makes her so is that she's arbitrary um, in how she spins the wheel. And so your fortunes can change very quickly and you don't have any control over that. 
And one of the important messages that's coming out of Boethius's philosophy is that you should really not uh, be taken in by fortune, by uh, the kind of temporal and material and earthly kinds of seductions um, that she tries to uh, kind of uh, ensnare you um, with. And that um, in instead you should sort of hold out for the internal eternal kind of timeless rewards of heaven right mm -hmm. and so i think the the really radical shift that happens in the early modern period is that fortune becomes instead a more inviting and even potentially uh ethical invitation to action um and to opportunity in the world mm -hmm. and there comes to be a kind of um possibility that you can pursue fortune and even uh, earthly, earthly riches um, in ways that are ethical and ways that are ennobling. Um, and, and you see that being mirrored in the shift in the iconographical tradition of fortune in the emblem books. Um, mm -hmm. These were emblems that were published on the continent, but then, um, you know, very um, taken up, embraced by English emblem books, uh, George Withers and um, Jeffrey Whitney. And you see depicted um, fortune on the sea. And she, it's often the, the seafaring image of fortune as a ship at sea, the figure of Fortuna becomes the mast of the ship. And often that figure is conflated with another uh, tradition, that of uh, Akazia or occasion, which represents opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that figure is distinctive for having this long forelock who, that sort of flows out of her forehead and then bald and back. And she passes you by. And what's being called out for is that you're to grab her and seize that lock of hair, you know, before she passes you by. So it's this real incentive um, to seize opportunity. Um, and so it's a very different message from the message uh, that, you know, the fortune's wheel and and the Boethian tradition, right? Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, It made so much sense when I began reading. Uh, I had not put all of this stuff together, but uh, of course, in the medieval church, uh, it would be strong. But then in the 16th century, you talk a, a good bit about this strong uh, element of Calvinism that came through that arguably is even more against the, even the thought of there being chance, uh, not a free will uh, theology. And that at the same time, in parallel with uh, you know, what Stephen Greenblatt years ago called self-fashioning and also being able to fashion your career, the Machiavellian um, uh, advice and the advice given to young men and how to fashion their careers uh, and how to m make their own luck. Right, that's right. Um, I, I mean, that's what's so striking about how kind of prevalent and, and um, forceful and, and strongly animated um, the concept of fortune was in this period, because at the same time you had uh, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, um, John Calvin, you know, saying there is no such thing as fortune and it's, you know, sacrilegious to even utter the word. Um, much less to put much, you know, any stock in that concept. Everything happens because of God's providence. Uh, you know, there's a grand plan um, and, and human beings aren't privy to that plan. Uh, we can't fully, uh, we can't understand it. We can't, we can't uh, see it, you know, see what it means um, from our perspective here on earth. 
Um, but you know, nonetheless, it, it exists. And, and there's some way in which fortune, I think, um, uh, although from Calvin's perspective, you know, fortune is just out of the picture. Um, it very much wasn't out of the picture, for, I think, within a more popular uh, consciousness of the period. And I think um, from that perspective, there was a, a lot of ways in which fortune and providence kind of overlapped with one another, or uh, there was a sense that providence was sort of um, that that picture that you couldn't quite see and fortune was sort of what you could see, those signs, those coincidences, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, those kinds of, um, uh, you know, shifts in, in, you know, in your luck and so forth. Um, there's different names that were given to it, like like luck or chance. Um, which were sometimes synonymous with with the meaning of fortune at the time. So um, there was, you know, there were ways in which fortune and providence were coexistent, and and sometimes even names for kind of the same thing, or they fortune and providence could kind of slip in and in and out of one another, um, even though you know you weren't supposed to, from a, a, a kind of Protestant Calvinist uh, perspective, you weren't supposed to um, put put any stock in fortune. Right, right. Well, uh, central to your book, and we need to get this out, is how this thing um, found itself and was expressed on the stage, on the early modern stage. Uh, you are talking about a uh, tradition, of a scholastic tradition that goes uh, to the mid uh, mid Middle Ages, but we are talking about uh, learned people, not necessarily the uh, popular uh you know the whatever the non-elite or or non-educated which were you know the bulk of society but then of course in the 16th century that you get more people who can read and uh more ways to distribute through print technology and all of a sudden this burst in the london theater scene and most of your book goes into it's what i think an extraordinarily interesting selection of dramas that not only are shakespeare shakespeare's there uh, but show how uh, uh, around this London stage to the public, how uh, this idea of fortune is being presented and globalized in a way, right? The beginning of globalization of, of this concept. Yeah, um, I mean, it's very important to how I'm coming at the topic of fortune, that this uh, the theater's uh, role in um, taking an interest in the concept, in representing adventures that take place in foreign places, in representing seafaring, in representing travel, in representing uh, risky kinds of investment, um, all of these things. So thematically and representationally, the theater is interested in these things, but also the theater itself uh, I would say identifies with fortune, with the concept of fortune, um, because of its own implication in London commerce, um, because of its own kind of evolving financial structure, which was was quite radically new uh, in Shakespeare's time and 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 just before Shakespeare's time, when the theater became uh, profit driven and investors in the theater financiers were not necessarily um, associated directly with the theater, they could be outside investors. So that find that kind of financial structure of the theater. Um, and then um, going along with that, um, the, the theaters kind of um, own engagement with its audience, um, the, the risks of live performance, 
um, and, and the contingencies that could happen, um, you know, in, in that context of live performance, um, we're all very much, you know, connected with this concept of fortune, um, the, the ways that uh, performances were very much dependent upon uh, the whims of audiences. Uh, and um, I mean, Prospero's epilogue comes to mind here when he says, gentle, gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill or else my project fails. Um, that's what he's referring to. He's yeah. and, and that seafaring metaphor there coming yeah. into play. I think the, the theater adopted that metaphor of seafaring as as a kind of um, a motif of fortune. Um, for its own practices and thought of uh, thought of performance and theatricality in a way uh, as a form of seafaring or similar to seafaring in terms of the kinds of risks um, that were involved in it, but is but also in terms of the rewards, the potential big rewards that were involved. Um, and yeah, so I can say more about that as we go on. Yeah, this is, uh, of course, in seafaring, uh, which, of course, uh, you know, you uh, immediately uh, taken to the Merchant of Venice and Hamlet. But uh, kind of surprising to me, you you uh, start with Faustus and uh, Friar ba Bacon, Friar Bungie, Robert Greene's uh, much uh, to our disappointment overlooked play yes and I, I was interested in why you went there first I, I know why now but that was first right yeah I mean that was kind of what I had in mind too I wanted to start off with two plays that people would say huh why you know what does that have to do with with fortune and commerce and um but I actually think when you when you look at these plays closely um or not even that closely you start to see the preponderance of um references that you know run throughout both plays uh to commerce and to um to empire and to the difference between commercial empire and uh empires that are uh kind of uh, uh, um, earned through or won through um conquest of land conquest of territory mm -hmm. right i think mm -hmm. both plays are actually interested in that distinction mm -hmm. um and and running i mean of course uh Dr. Faustus is a play that's quite interested in um, exposing um, the dangers of overreaching, imperial overreaching, and uh, different forms of uh, human, you know, uh, ambition that gets out of control. Um, and um, sometimes that can be manifested uh, in, in, in the form of uh, greed for um, control over commerce or uh, desire for um, exotic commodities that, that Faustus, you know, wants to lay claim to. And, you know, a lot of his language and, and the motivation for why he wants this power that, that uh, magic gives to him um, is, you know, actually uh, this, this lust for these exotic commodities and access to these, you know, far reaches of the earth, um, far corners of the earth, uh, which he imagines himself conquering and then laying claim to all of their riches. So, um, you know, I think it's interesting because these plays have been spoken about before together by scholars, but usually not 
to my knowledge, um, because they're, in, they're, they're talking about uh, interest in commerce um, or even interest in um, empire. Translatio imperii is, is a, a kind of historiographical concept that I think both plays are also interested in taking up. Um, but rather, scholars have approached these plays together because they feature magicians and they're sort of, you know, written contemporary to one another. And um, I think that sort of becomes the way that we, you know, get used to thinking about these plays, right? And if, if these plays are about um, humanistic enterprise, it, it has to do with um, knowledge and, you know, in Fire Bacon and Fire Bungay, like the, the building of this, um, the, the, the construction of this brass wall or the oracular head, you know, that appears. And um, so I think that um, sometimes the emphasis on those things that we get used to, you know, associating these plays with maybe obscures, you know, some of the other um, interests that these plays have. And, and that was one of the things uh, that I that I wanted to um, kind of call to uh call to my reader's attention. I want to go to your play selection and return to that because there were other surprises mm -hmm. in there for me uh, and a couple of things that I had to go quickly and try to uh, get acquainted with or hadn't read in uh, some years. But uh, this whole idea of this, this strong Calvinism, this uh, uh, Reformation theology, the, the space for that, uh, it's almost ecclesiastical. There's a time for that. It's called going to church whenever, Sunday, whenever you go to church. That's mm -hmm. when you're told you're in God's hands. But then there's a time for fortune and chance, and that's in the playhouse. Uh, you had to be very careful as a dramatist how you displayed religion is, is done. And you've written all this, but the uh, uh, the thing is if it, that that is what makes it uh, a play exciting, the idea of chance, uh, sometimes dumb luck, uh, fortune, and you know the the visuals that all come with that uh, is is just a, a fabulous idea. And um, I want to go to the uh, well, of course, Merchant of Venice, but the Four Princesses of London and mm -hmm. Fair Maid. Fair Maid was one of my uh, favorites uh, off Shakespeare. You know, hey, was so f prolific, uh, but you don't get to see that. I did see a performance, an excellent performance, years ago. Uh, and it's, it's a great play to play with because you're outside of Shakespeare. You can do a lot of stuff and uh, mm -hmm. uh, just fair made. And um, uh, I'm, I'm looking through your table of con contents, Hamlet, of course, but riding out the storm, per Pericles. Yes. Uh, but other things in here, including John D, not necessarily all dramatists. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm very interested how you arrange this um, uh, smorgasbord of uh, dramas because you, I'm sure you had to make make decisions on those that you you had to exclude for various reasons, and then this, these that you obviously what you want to do is say, this is not just a Shakespearean thing. This is yeah. public, public consciousness in in transition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was not easy to come, you know, to make my to kind of whittle things down to the final choices. Um, and in the end, um, I decided to pair uh, two plays in each chapter that sort of speak to one another. And you're absolutely right that it was important to me that the plays 
not just be Shakespeare. Um, and that I really foreground more plays that were not written by Shakespeare. In fact, um, I, that's, you know, how I've always wanted to, how I've always tended to, um, to uh, kind of approach uh, the early modern theater. Um, I think there's so many fantastic plays out there um, that, you know, aren't read as much or aren't, aren't considered, uh, you know, as good or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and yet they are, you know, and they really deserve to be studied and thought about and read and, and they're fantastic plays often um, exciting and fun and, um, you know, interesting dramaturgically, et cetera, like the Four Apprentices of London and, and like Fair Maid of the West and Decker's Old Fortunatus, which is Old another Fortunatus. one I talk about. You know, they they sometimes get overlooked or get short shrift because of, uh, you know, the the dominance of Shakespeare. And I loved I love Shakespeare as much as the next person. So not but I, I think I'm there's also part of me that's um, resists a kind of Shakespeare's, you know, Shakespeare exceptionalism and, and so forth. Um, Haywood, I think, um, is a fantastic playwright. And he was very. Um, uh, he was very prolific in, in in writing plays about adventure. So I could have chosen, a, you know, a, any number of plays written by Haywood. Um, the ad, sort of adventure genre um, that was um, popular on the stage around in the, you know, kind of in the 10 years preceding and then following 1600, the turn of the 17th century. Um, I think um, adventure plays really had their heyday. Mm -hmm. um, so plays like Fortune by Land and Sea and The Fair Maid of the West and a number of others. And, and yeah, it, was, it wasn't it was easy uh, to, to make um, the cuts. The book could have been much longer. Um, and all of these plays are interesting and doing very different things, in fact. There's, of course, a, a current here not all things turned out well for others as, as uh, you know, as much as we love the images of swashbuckling and, uh, and chance and this, this sort of thing, um, this, a sword fight, you know, you see it in Romeo and Juliet. It's, it just seems to be just dumb luck uh, that one guy that Tybalt died and Romeo didn't, you know, that kind of thing. We go on and on and on with examples, but this this seafaring and this moving out and going into the world, of course, uh, predates by not very much uh, colonization and those things that happened uh, worldwide, uh, and it's be it's beginning pretty much at this in this period. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, the, the, these plays are imaginative. They're they're imagining uh, other worlds. They're imagining encounters. They're um, and I think that's you know what's really interesting about them is uh, they're fictions um, and they're uh, speculative in in certain ways um, and they really uh, kind of unleash the imagination uh you know of uh well the playwrights and and the audiences as well um in in, in terms of um the kind sometimes the extraordinary um kinds of things that uh the stories that they tell so i mean you mentioned four princesses of london which is the story of uh, these four brothers who are noble, uh, but their fortunes have turned, you know, sort of um, downward and they've been reduced to being London apprentices. Um, and um, at some point early on, uh, because they're they're relatively unhappy in, in their trades, um, 
although they take some pride in them, uh, they decide to enlist. There's a call to enlist uh, in the army and, and, and join the Crusades um, against the Muslims in Jerusalem. And so, you know, the, the most of the play is about these extraordinary travels that they undertake um, in which they cross paths multiple times and have numerous adventures and, uh, you know, individually, um, you know, encounter their sister who they don't recognize. So they all kind of fall in love with her without realizing she's their sister and they don't recognize one another either. So the play is, is ridiculous. It's absurd. It's outlandish. You know, all of these uh, things are true of it. And yet, um, I, and I think that's what's interesting about it is that evidence suggests that that didn't stop it from actually being quite wondrous and mm -hmm. um, from audiences really uh, enjoying it and, and not just kind of enjoying it because uh, they're snickering, but actually, you know, kind of in a way allowing themselves to be taken in and and um, the play really sort of explores the limits of um, you know what can be possible on the stage and and how far you know uh, they can go in terms of um, challenging the audience's imagination and and of course um, representing long distance travel oceanic travel um, you know, shipwreck, dangers of, of seafaring, all of that is not something that the stage does naturally or easily. No. So, you know, it, it, it sort of um, uh, raises the question, well, why were so many plays, playwrights interested in doing just that, you know, when it was something that their, their medium actually didn't lend itself to, uh, certainly not very realistically. Um, and I think it was, you know, it was actually uh, that challenge and, and the kind of um, what happens when you sort of expose um, the difficulties there and the mm -hmm. kinds of uh, disjunctures from um, realism that, um, you know, is part of what was entertaining about these plays um, and part of what was interesting about, uh, you know, their, their dramaturgy from, from our perspective now. Um, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, it, it does. I, I, I'm thinking as, as you're speaking, you know, the prologue to Henry V, you know, it, you're going to have to bring it. We can't do it. We, we can't yeah. bring, uh, you know, pr princes armies onto the stage. You got to meet us, um, halfway here with your imagination. And I've seen, uh, product uh, years ago, a production of the Tempest that should have been good. The director, the actors, everybody, and they tried to bring this image of the ship onto the stage at the beginning with the shipwreck. And it was, yeah. it was absurd, you know, yeah, so I don't know yeah. how they did it, but uh, it's a real challenge, isn't it? For a director to, to get armies and ships and so forth into the minds of the audience. Right. Well, I think that they, that's the thing. I don't think that they were interested in, in they didn't try to provide a realistic representation of these things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, perhaps in modern productions, when they do try to do it on a stage, it, it doesn't work as you're suggesting as well, necessarily. Um, but um, I've seen productions, um, you know, recent productions of Pericles, for example, which is another play that, mm -hmm is a play that very much, you know, is staging travel. And um, uh, that play, you know, didn't, the production that I'm thinking of didn't try to do that. And I've seen other productions that don't try to do that. And, and 
it, nevertheless, it's a beautiful play to watch. And it, it's a, you know, it's very emotional, it, you know, kind of emotionally um, driven play in some ways. And, and there's a way that you kind of give over to it, um, despite the fact that there's nothing realistic about um, it, its um, kind of um, representational practices or, or what it's trying to do um, representationally. Yeah, uh, I agree. Well, uh, I, I want you, uh, your readers to uh, be able to in, enjoy uh, this. I, uh, I want to move ahead and then move backwards and, and not, not go through linear time uh, exactly. But I'm interested in one of your key words here for a forthcoming project because you, you, it, it just doesn't stop or the work keeps going. And uh, you're co-authoring with uh, Henry Turner, uh, a book that's entitled The Shakespearean Horizon, uh, Worlds Upon Worlds in the Renaissance and Today. So what might we expect? And this word uh, that you use, talk the worlding of things, the worlding, if you could explain to us how that, how that uh, concept works in your uh, research and writing. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's um, it's interesting because my er, my work, you know, the book that we've just been talking about, uh, Globalizing Fortune, really is about um, the idea of a global world and um, the idea of, you know, what happens when England, you know, starts to become more aware of um, a kind of global world um, and, and, and starts to want to get involved in, in that global world in a new way. Um, and... Um, my, my first book, you know, was also, you know, um, which is Islamic conversion and Christian resistance on yeah. the early modern stage. Right. Yeah. I, um, I want to get back also... to, I want to get back to that after the worlding, uh, part. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I won't some... say much about it, but just to make yeah. the point that that book was also kind of taken up with, yeah. um, early globalization, you know, something that you could call early globalization. Right. Um, but when you ask about worlding and this new project, we were really attracted to the concept of world. Um, and worlding um, because I, I would say because it's it's more um, it, it has a kind of speculative um, uh, kind of a, a kind of connotation that is possible with that that concept it doesn't it doesn't like kind of mean anything <laughs> exactly in itself I mean it's very open on uh, this yep. concept of world in a way um, and um, it's one that, I mean, what we're trying to do, I think, ultimately, and using Shakespeare as a kind of source, a, a resource for us, but a starting place um, to look for models of world that are a kind of alternative to globe, you know, that are alternative uh -huh. to the course that world has. I mean, you could say that the globe is, is a one specific kind of iteration of world. It's mm -hmm. one specific kind of understanding of world um, as a kind of objectified, mappable, um, kind of geopolitical uh, kind of entity, right? Um, and I think there's so many other, um, we're, we're interested in the, the fact that there's just so many other possibilities in terms of how world can be understood and how that term is used. Yeah. Um, and it, it's one that's used um, all over Shakespeare, um, all over Shakespeare's plays, all over the early modern stage period, right? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, whereas the, it's striking um, when we realized, we looked up the word globe and in Shakespeare's plays, and it, it really only appears, I think, three times. So, oh, you know, even yeah. though 
we've as scholars we've made a big deal about the global um in in early modern um literature and and, and in the 16th and 17th centuries um i think world was actually like in a lot of ways a bigger uh, more important concept at the time um and certainly one of the premises that we have for the book is that um world is not singular we're interested in um worlds so um we're interested in a plural pluralistic approach yeah um, in the period um and again that's countering other approaches that uh, would focus more specifically on the mapping of the globe and uh kind of the early modern development of this like single holistic world that is objectified um instead we're interested in entertaining the idea of multiple worlds in the period and really even the idea of a multiverse um mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and so along with that another um kind of premise of the book or another concept that's important to us is that of cosmology how that concept helps us to approach the concept of world in terms of governing principles, which uh, might include aesthetic principles and ethical principles. And so along those lines, I've recently been um, doing some research into um, kind of the cosmological um, understandings of world that were specific to um, Stoicism and Buddhism mm -hmm. to consider different kinds of worldly cosmologies that run counter to the more imperialistic model that we tend to associate with European humanism, with, with someone with, with the character of Prospero, for example, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. What we're, we're so familiar kind of with that, we associate that with the period, I think. And there's good reasons why we, I mean, it makes sense um, because that's the world we've inherited, you know, this global world, this imperial world, right? Hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other worlds that have always been, you know, always been with us and, and can always be possible in the future. So that that's, you know, part of what we're interested in capturing. Yeah. So uh, another thing, and I think this is, um, you know, maybe ties back to um, what we're talking about with Shakespeare in terms of, yes, I love Shakespeare, but at the same time, I don't think that, you know, Shakespeare should be studied to the exclusion of, you know, uh, other writers, right? So, you know, what we're interested in with this book is also doing kind of some trans-historical intertextual work. Um, I mean, again, I don't know how much of this will wind up in the actual book that we publish, but in terms of our creative process, um, I've been really inspired by contemporary works of fiction, um, especially by um, ethnic American writers who are interested in um, speculative worlds, you know, and the uses of fiction to imagine new worlds. So um, writers like Ruth Ozeki, um, who wrote a book called A Tale for the Time Being that I found very interesting to think about in relation to Antony and Cleopatra, for example. And I, I can't help but bring this in here. What you're talking about reminds me so much years ago of meeting uh, your former colleague, he's passed now, uh, Arthur Kinney. And yeah. uh, and it, it, the 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 fortunate that our our fortune in having been able to work with this uh, gentleman, uh, he was so bright, so productive, so wonderful, uh, magnanimous in the uh, in in terms of I'll, I'll just have to say I would not be sitting here with this career that finally worked out and and it, uh, without Arthur it would, would never yeah. Have 
It never would have. And he was just that way. It seems to be there in the spirit of uh, UMass Amherst, because uh, Arthur was stopping and write a book on Faulkner. You know, he uh, he didn't see limitations and he right. would go uh, straight out into any any area he saw. I think he did some work on Toni Morrison at, at one point. I know that he greatly appreciated her writing, uh, but I did want to mention uh, uh, in, memor uh, in memoriam uh, Arthur Kinney. Uh, and all oh, do I wish I could have a talk with him now. You know, you just, yeah, you just wish people could live forever, but we can't. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely a big expansive thinker. Um, but what you're saying also puts me in mind of uh, the concept of small world, you know, um, like, it, in the sense that uh, a lot of, a lot of roads lead back uh, to Arthur, I suppose that, um, and, and we're intersecting in a way because of, uh, because of the, the world that he built, um, or helped to build um, through his own scholarship and his own um, kind of, uh, you know, generosity and, and desire to kind of reach out as, as far and wide as he could. So, yeah. Yeah. What, what, well, I want to backtrack just a little bit and uh, move from Arthur to you. And uh, I, you're, I, I would like to put this in kind of now before we get too far into it uh, and before we get to conversion, which would be next, but you have a, a preface in, if we go back to uh, the glo globalizing, your most recent book, um, where you talk about your background and the, the idea, the element of chance. And if you could share yeah. a, a bit of that with us uh, here. I, I loved it, by the way. What a great way to begin a book about fortune and chance and what can happen in a life. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that's the case. Um, you know, it was actually quite a, a risky undertaking for me to write such a personal preface. Um, it, it's not uh, something I've done before. I haven't actually published any personal writing uh, in the past. So, um, and to make it part of a scholarly book was also a kind of risky uh, undertaking for me, I would say. So I'm, I'm always happy to hear when, when people felt that it spoke to them or added some value to the book. But, you know, I felt it was really an honest way of accounting for my interest and my personal connection to the topic of fortune. Um, so, um, just to give a little background about, um, my early life, um, I was, I was an orphan, you know, I was adopted at an early age from South Korea by a family, uh, in New York, uh, an American family and, um, very little, uh, almost nothing is known about my early life, um, until I was adopted around the age of five or six months. Um, in fact, my, my birthday is actually a mystery. Um, I, I don't, there's no record of my birth and there's no record of, of my name from birth. So, um, one of the things that's always kind of fascinated me and preoccupied me is, you know, just this question of like, how is it that I kind of became who I am, like in this instant, you know, just by chance of, of being adopted by this family now, you know, given a new name, uh, being, you know, being named Jane, being given an identity, a nationality, a, a new language, a, a new religion, like all of these things, um, a whole new life, you know, in, in a sense, like my, it, it opened up a whole different kind of future um, from that moment, you know, than I probably would have had, you know, had I been adopted by someone else or had I not been adopted and stayed in, in South Korea or, you know, whatever the case might be. So it, 
you know, that kind of confrontation with like how in an instant, you know, your life can change so radically. And what is the reason for that? How do we explain that to ourselves, you know, and um, has always kind of preoccupied me. I think it's always been like a powerful thing. Um, and, and just to sort of understand, you know, so we use the word fortune, you know, so to describe that or luck or chance, right? But what do those words actually mean? You know, what, why do we name um, something that we actually can't know uh, a mystery? You know, um, why do we choose the name fortune to name that mystery? And, and that's interesting to me too. It's this um, kind of, um, you know, what kind of narrative are we imposing onto these mysteries, the, the you know, kind of these, these things that are totally unknowable. Um, my, my, my past history, which is unrecoverable, my roots, right? I'll yeah. never be able to recover it. And, and there's something painful about that. But, you know, there's also something maybe I, I tried to have a kind of more uh, positive uh, a sort of uh, twist to it by saying that, um, you know, kind of confronting um, what's unknowable um, and, and um, sort of being with it, you know, in a way um, is in some ways also liberating in some ways um, uh, kind of um, generates a kind of potentiality, you know, um, just, you know, so, so it doesn't necessarily just have to be a, a kind of dead end or a source of like, well, let's, you know, I'll never know that, you know, what, what can be, how can there be a more positive um, kind of resource in, in what is unknowable is part mm -hmm. of what animated my, my interest in the topic of fortune also. Yeah. I think somewhere in your educational background too, when you saw the Shakespearean drama, of course, probably first and foremost, and then moved out into uh, uh, the other dramas in this period that is transitional in uh, in the English speaking world and in the consciousness, you know, we, we, we still are living things that were set at that time for better or for worse, uh, religiously and uh, commercially that in, in our lives, that there had to be maybe in a deep structural way, a kind of, okay, this, I'm, I'm sort of at home with this, uh, these uh, public plays, these, this period of people in transition and not quite knowing where they're going, uh, maybe in many cases, not knowing exactly where they came from, uh, mobility, upward mobility happening uh, just by chance. And, and uh, um, so it, it seems to fit uh, the, the Shakespearean interest in early modern drama also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like, again, there's that, uh, you know, it's, you're putting me in mind of a quote from Twelfth Night when Sebastian says, um, yet doth that accident of flood and fortune so far exceed all instance, all discourse, that I'm ready to distrust mine eyes. Um, and I think there he's, you know, really referring to how, you know, fortune, like, you know, these things that can happen and that we experience, you know, can just sort of blow apart, you know, all our framework for for explaining anything, you know, um, the, the typical way, you know, we would we would tend to, you know, uh, we have no recourse, I guess, to those tools and those narratives um, that we would use to explain things, um, sometimes fortune uh, can do that to us. And, and, and I think, you know, it's what's important or what's helpful maybe to recognize in those moments is that it's, it's returning us to a kind of humbling, humbler, uh, position in the world. 
um, where we're not in control. Um, And, um, you know, maybe the way to um, approach that position is to be curious and uh, to be alert and, um, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, embrace that humility, you know, of, of not knowing you know, how has this happened? What does it mean? What's going to happen next, right? Um, those questions that, and I think lots of people in the world at different times in their life have had an experience, you know, that has, uh, you know, kind of made them feel this way, um, where something just hits them out of nowhere. And wow, it just really, yeah, turns your world upside down. Yeah. It does, because I know with you and I know with me, every, it seemed like everyone along the way was saying, are you really sure you want to go in that direction? You know, there are so many, you know, you 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 do your homework, you're pretty smart. You probably could get a better paying job than uh, this or get a better job than that or whatever. Uh, but there was just something that uh, kind of drives us in this direction. Uh, and I think this is a kind of segue into conversion because we're talking about conversional thinking, uh, how um, I was talking with Steve Wittick uh, a couple of months ago and mm-hmm. discussing the the notion of conversion coming to you, you know, whacking you like a, a, Paul, a Pauline conversion or mm-hmm. you trying to go to it, you know, wanting to be converted, looking for a sign, but in this world of chance, you see, even though we think of the religious world as uh, uh, anti-chance, you know, all God's will, there's conversion, and there's a lot of chance in that. And you talk about Islamic in a in your prior book, Islamic conversion in this drama. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, I think you were part of the same project at uh, McGill. That's right. At the, the yeah. conversion project with uh, Paul uh, Yachnin. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, what a wonderful thing. And I was I was there and uh, at a conference hosted by Torrance Kirby, whom you may have met, too. Uh, yeah. What a what a fabulous pro- project and what a great idea to have a beginning and an end, <laughs> you know, because sometimes we begin things and you go, well, you know, what are we going to do now? Um, so let's let's kind of weave this together a little bit. Islamic conversion, the idea of conversion, because it is a subject that uh, our listeners are very interested in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I know Steve Wittick at, at, through the Conversions Project that you, you were mentioning, and Paul Yachnin, um, you know, was a, another uh, figure in our field who was just a, a world builder. You know, wonderful at bringing um, yeah. scholars together from all over the place and. And to talk about conversion, and this was happened over multiple years, this project um, played out. So um, I think, you know, one of the things it shows us is that conversion was just such a central preoccupation for the period. And there's so many ways um, in which that concept was was meaningful in the early modern period, Um, you know. It, religious conversion was one thing, but then there were all kinds of other kinds of conversions um, that people were thinking about. And um, so like fortune, you know, it, it's a really major concept for, for the period. Um, and in my um, book, what I was interested in were these plays, these English plays um, that um, seem to be taken up with the fascination of conversion to Islam as a kind of sexual seduction. Um, as one uh, that was, you know, quite literally um, was uh, sort of uh, manifested through sexual intercourse, right? Mm -hmm. So 
it was not only imagined as a kind of religious conversion or a spiritual conversion, um, but also a kind of bodily conversion, you know, one that maybe had reproductive consequences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really think that conversion in that context, um, you know, takes on uh, significance in terms of the history of race and the, the history of um, the intersection between um, religion and race. Um, so that's one of the things I was interested in getting at. Um, also um, interested in the way that gender comes into play and sexuality mm-hmm. come into play, um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, so much in the in the constructions uh, of the and again, these are imagined constructions um, that the theater that the playwrights um, are producing of how um, Christians become converted to Islam, right? It wasn't um, it had no basis in fact, or, and the place didn't even, uh, pretend that they had a basis in fact, but it's, it's this imaginative, imaginative, uh, capacity and, uh, the power of the imagination, um, that I think is, is so interesting about the plays, um, and, and how, um, these imaginative, um, dramas, um, are, you know, have so much to tell us about, in fact, the history of race and religion in early modern England and, and histories that we've, we've inherited, you know, in, in some ways are still with us today in terms of, uh, some of the ways in which we, uh, sexualize, um, uh, Eastern or, or Muslim figures, um, and, and demonize these figures, um, and, and so forth. So it's like some of the, this we've inherited and, in, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the history, um, that, that is, um, kind of, uh, rooted in the imaginations of these early plays. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it reveals, uh, through this, uh, the study of these and it just, I, I, that might be a little bit too serious minded, just reconsidering them, seeing a seeing a production, it reveals stuff. Uh, you just begin to see things about your, your own existence and the world in which we live, whether they are the same or different, or it, there's an interaction there that is in, it's in my, in my experience, seems enlightening, you know, and, uh, I'd like to think so. Uh, now you you take this these ideas into your teaching and you uh, you do work on uh, gender and mm-hmm. uh, women's studies I believe and uh, across the board there and you you weave that into some things that are now kind of more current issues uh, that we're confronting now uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about that how you how you uh, present this stuff in your teaching yeah well I mean. For me, of course, it you know, going back to my my early history, um, it's just a matter of chance that I, you know, became a Shakespearean, I suppose, right? Um, but what drew me to Shakespeare's plays, and and so this is something that you know I think informs my teaching quite directly, was um, an interest in, and not just Shakespeare's plays, but all of the plays of the of the Renaissance period of the English Renaissance, um, is in some ways how how foreign they are, you know, um, and how much there's to be discovered in them. Um, and there's an interesting dichotomy between there's, you know, there's something familiar, of course, there's something, I mean, I don't want to use the word universal, but you know, something that we, we think, you know, there are many moments in the plays where we think, okay, I'm, I'm right there, uh, with that moment, I, I I know what this means. I felt this, or you know, this this is uh, very relatable to me. But at the same time, there's so much in these plays that is completely foreign. You know, the words, um, the 
you know, many of the the metaphors, many of the themes and ideas, you know, some, some of the more subtle themes, I think, are, are quite, there's just um, so much to be uh, discovered, invitations for discovery and for creativity. So um, that's how I kind of like to approach the, the plays in my teaching, I think. Um, and I definitely feel that increasingly um, my teaching has moved um, more in the direction of um, interest in social justice and interest in, in, well, just asking the question about what it, what is social justice, what, what can literature contribute to it, you know, in what ways is literature a form of social justice, um, Shakespeare being um, you know, the most canonical uh, author, um, you know, that, you know, we, we tend to teach and, and certainly very uh, influential all over the world, uh, not, n- not always for reasons that we're proud of, you know, um, colonialism and so forth has uh, obviously um, helped um, uh, spread Shakespeare's plays around the world and, and made him so influential. But at the same time, I think it behooves us because of um, the, the wide reach of Shakespeare to think about, well, what can and what is Shakespeare? What are the teaching of his plays, the adaptation of his plays? Um, and so the, you know, the production of his plays around the world, like what, how is, can that serve us um, in terms of social justice, in terms of some of the, the challenges um, that we face in our current world today? And so I like to, um, in my teaching, encourage students, and they want to be thinking about these things too. Um, so it's not a, it's not a stretch for them. It's not something that um, I'm, you know, banging them over the head with. At least not, not with my students at UMass. You know, they're they're very eager to think about like, well, we're reading the Tempest. You know, how does that relate to the world we live in now? Like, how can this, how has this play been used, and how can it be used mm-hmm. um, to address questions uh, relating to social justice in our world today? And and uh, in a class that I recently taught, um, you know, we we did a whole unit on. Um, the the teaching of Shakespeare in prison and uh, the Tempest in particular um, as a play that's been performed in prison and um, you know just thinking about um, the resonances uh, that become possible you know when we put Shakespeare into these um, new kinds of contexts in the world um, when we sort of take him out of the I mean not that I, I think there's value to historicism and and uh, that's fascinating too so I wouldn't want to discount that but I think there's also value in m- moving Shakespeare into new kinds of contexts and seeing you know what good can be done there well I'm working now on uh Shakespearean ad- uh adaptation with a couple of Japanese colleagues uh and we've done uh, some work and I've done some very recent work uh, but it's very clear that uh, now there's there's one string of reception of Shakespeare in, in the history from the Meiji period, from the late 19th century, where there there were here and there at points what they were what are called the garter and hose productions, where you try to make as authentic, you know, whatever that means. But basically, the strongest strain of uh, Shakespearean um, adaptation in J- in Japan has been from left theater 
theater mm-hmm. that was uh, oppositional and did not feel uh, a great obligation to give you the Victorian the or the 18th century uh, bard or the icon. They felt very free from the very uh, beginning. And it goes all the way through and it picks up after World War II in uh, underground theaters and um you know, uh, what we'd call avant-garde, avant-garde um, uh, theater, you know, influence here and there. So uh, so what I, I gather is, okay, we have Shakespeare, the bust or whatever, but when you get theater people involved with this, they get into the material and they see something they like, uh, and particularly in left, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, left-driven theater. Um, so, uh, it's not always imperial <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and it seems that Shakespeare does, and I bet we could find many examples, maybe an in Indian theater and so forth where, uh, Shakespeare is there, here. You have a lot of free raw material that you can do with what you want. Yeah. And, uh, so there, there, there have yeah. to be some happy social justice stories out there and not just the, the big bad West doing what um it has done right right that's true too yeah i i mean i've been thinking a lot about pericles uh which is a play that i've i've spoken of i think already and, and it's one that i talk about in the globalizing fortune book but that that's a play that's been taken up um you know recently in ways to um to uh kind of address the the migrant uh the refugee kind of experience um in the mediterranean right and i I think that's you know so important to address but also fascinating the way that that play can can um, do that and uh the red bull theater in new york they did a recent kind of series on that play uh where they had bipoc theater practitioners and artists you know talking about their relationship to that play and they had a staged reading of it by uh kent gash um which um which really sort of um was done in the vein of uh, kind of um, aspiring to a resonance with the the transatlantic um, slave trade and the the journey, you know, sort of kind of moving it into a whole different context, in fact, but it really, it actually works. Some of the themes in the play uh, that have to do with um, separation from family, you know, and the the kind of um, unrootedness and, and longing that that can create, and and then the way that that really informs the emotional in, impact of the the family reunion at the end of the play, right? Yes. Um, I mean, some would say that uh, an adaptation like that is, um, or one, or, or even a stage reading that is is trying to draw out some of those resonances um, for a whole different kind of history is really changing the play in ways that it wasn't meant to be, you know, that was not intended by Shakespeare. But I don't think that really matters. I think Shakespeare would be very happy um, to see this happening. Yeah, um, this, this intentionality thing that's uh, it's hard because you and I now have been in this for years, and you probably have had it, uh, you know. Every time you teach a play, again, you start seeing something. And there are these scary moments where you go, I, I've i never seen this. It's, it was here in front of me the whole time. And it's, I, you know, maybe this play is trying to do something entirely different than what I originally thought, you know. Uh, so trying to gauge intentionality in Shakespeare is a very slippery uh, slope, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't even. It's not, and it's not really interesting either. So it's I, not. I no, yeah. Uh, my it's made that, that way. It's made to be flexible. I'm sure there were adaptations in Shakespeare's own time. And you know, they didn't play Hamlet the same way every time. And there, you know, there's all the evidence of you know cutting plays for this uh, venue and doing more this over here, or whatever. Uh, you know, you're free to do that stuff, and people should remain free to do it. Uh, Although there is a strong historic, you know, the, all of the bad stuff, you know, coming mainly from out of the 18th century, out of a kind of colonial consciousness and uh, and the high Victorian idea of, or I, maybe it might be more the educational, the uh, late 19th, early 20th century educational community where they adopted what, the, you know, these values uh, that were, uh, that led to, what did uh, Bill Carroll talked about? But yeah. Uh, royalist readings mm -hmm. of uh, Shakespeare's that, that that still have that uh, force out there, but it's it's not it's not nearly as strong now. And uh, and the, yeah. material, well, the, the material itself will lead you. You know, if you're doing dealing with the social justice issue, it will lead you there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the field is changing. You know, in good ways. It's evolving. You know, and uh, hopefully it will continue to to do so. It's uh, in terms of the the breadth of uh, well, the 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 scholars who uh, are laying claim to Shakespeare, and and the you know the diverse breadth of ways in which um, Shakespeare uh, can lend itself to um, different conversations and, um, you know, directions of, of scholarship and teaching and, and, and service in the world. So. Yeah. Well, uh, this has just been wonderful. Jane, I, uh, I would like to ask you to stay for a moment, uh, and to debrief, but, uh, I, I think we've, we've covered that well, we could go on and on, you know, there's, I mean, you're, you're talking about worlds, you know, in multi <laughs> multiverses, uh, this could go, right. but I think that, uh, our, uh, you know, just as my students, uh, as people in the, uh, uh, Shakespeare society of Japan, we have an international audience coming in from, uh, various and sundry, not a huge audience, but a very diverse and, uh, interested, uh, group. And uh, I'm sure I'm speaking on their behalf uh, when I say thank you very much. Uh, it's just so good of you to to take your time here. Uh, I'm I'm here on a early on a Friday morning, and you're and you're Thursday night in Massachusetts, uh, and I'm keeping I'm keeping you away from a, a, your dinner. But uh, uh, oh no, well thank you for getting up so early for me. <laughs> it's my, my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's our pleasure. Yeah, and, mine too. And, and please do stay, but thank you so much for contributing to our little series here. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.